This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Okay, pop quiz. Over the long run, which stocks tend to perform better? Growth stocks, or those of high-flying, fast-growing companies, or value stocks, those that tend toward slower growth and often are unloved? Here's a hint. If you're over 40, you have an advantage here. The answer is, of course, value stocks, whose long-term growth rate is more than two percentage points higher than that of growth stocks, according to the 2020 SBBI yearbook. If that doesn't sound like much, note that value's edge has been built over more than a century. If you invested a single dollar in large U.S. growth stocks at the start of 1917, it'd be worth nearly $6,000 at the end of 2019. That's some serious compounding, but much less impressive when compared to that of large value stocks, which grew to more than $35,000. In the past decade, however, the story has been reversed. We've been in the bizarro world of investing for comic fans, where growth stocks have become the dominant performers. And in 2020, a bizarro world of comic book proportions if there ever was one, this trend has even accelerated. This is simple but not easy a podcast about investing in behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. I'm Drew Carter. Today, we'll take a closer look at the widening performance gap between growth and value stocks. My guest today is Philip Strail, our head of capital markets and asset allocation for the Americas. Philip has some slides he'll discuss today, and those slides are available in the notes section of this episode or by emailing us at simple at Morningstar.com. That's simple at Morningstar.com. Philip, thanks for being here. And before we dive into the performance gap between value and growth stocks, let's start by defining those terms. We at Morningstar Investment Management talk a lot about being value investors or being valuation driven. How does that relate to stocks being designated value or growth? It's a great question. And you know, we consider ourselves valuation driven investors, which from our point of view means that we make sure that we value every asset that we invest in. We think the value of an asset is the present value of its cash flow over, over its lifetime discounted at a, uh, at a discount rate that is consistent with how risky that asset class is. Um, whether or not an asset is, is high growth, uh, you know, has high earnings growth or not, doesn't, uh, doesn't really affect uh, you know that calculation. So we can we can like a company like Apple or or Google and some of the, the high growth firms at certain points in the cycle if they're attractively priced. So that's why we consider ourselves uh, valuation driven investors. So we don't always like uh, value uh, stocks as defined by by some of these indices uh, versus growth stocks. Uh, that classification really refers to, uh, and we'll speak to that uh, in a minute here. Uh, you know, some specific definitions in terms of how indices or factors are constructed. Um, so with that, maybe we can uh, get started with the slide deck. And uh, again, uh, welcome to the, uh, to the discussion today. Um, just to uh, provide a bit more uh, context to the point that I just made earlier uh, about, you know, does this 
debate matter? You know, where where does it fit in, and uh, uh, who better to uh, to go to than uh, than Warren Buffett uh, to to help us understand that question a bit better? So I'm going to read this quote uh, from uh, a uh, shareholder letter in the early '90s. Uh, so he says that most analysts feel they must choose between two approaches, uh, customarily thought to be in opposition: value and growth. Indeed, many investment professionals professionals see any mixing of the two terms as a form of intellectual cross-dressing. We view uh, that as fuzzy thinking. Uh, In our opinion, the two approaches are joined at the hip. Growth is always a component in the calculation of value, constituting a variable whose importance can range from negligible to enormous and whose impact can be negative as well as positive. So this really speaks to this idea. If you're a valuation-driven investor like Warren Buffett, uh, whether uh, the company realizes the growth uh, in cash flows at 10 or 15 years from now, or you know tomorrow, doesn't really matter. You make that you, you make that calculation. You uh, look at the present uh, present value of future cash flows, and you assess whether the company is attractive. So, so why is this? Uh, what are we talking about when we talk about this value growth debate? And if we flip to the next slide, I just want to. Uh, clarify some uh, definitions that the industry uses in terms of classifying stocks into value and growth groupings. And uh, the important thing to emphasize here that these are really uh, characteristics that these companies have uh, based off of the multiple often that they trade uh, at. Uh, that's how they're being classified into those value growth components. So let me start with the Fama French definition. Oftentimes, that's uh, referred to as the value or the uh, the value factor, also known as HML. Um, so what they're doing, uh, and that's a going back to a paper that was written in the early '90s. Uh, what they're doing is they're taking value are the companies with uh, the 30 percent uh, cheapest uh, book to market ratios. So they look at the book of book to market. They rank them. Uh, based off of that metric, the 30% uh, cheapest, the ones with the highest book-to-market, uh, get uh, get the value uh, definition. The bottom 30% get the growth definition. So it's, uh, again, the important thing to emphasize here, this is not a evaluation in the sense where you're forecasting cash flows and discounting it back, um, like uh, Warren Buffett is referring to. So it's just looking at that one a particular metric. Um, then Morningstar has a style box, uh, as many would be uh, familiar with, and we all are also categorizing stocks based off of value and growth characteristics in addition to their market capitalization. And there's um, also a, a host of variables we're using, we're using five different uh, value um, metrics to identify whether a company should fall into the value bucket and also five different growth metrics, and we're sort of normalizing these and scoring the companies on, on that basis. Some of these are forward-looking, so using analyst estimates, uh, but also some uh, some current market-based uh, uh, metrics like the price-to-book, price-to-sales, price-to-cash flow, dividend, de- dividend yield for the value components on the growth side, uh, we're utilizing uh, a number of different growth rates as well as the projected growth rate. So now that we've clarified that, let's take a look at how uh, value versus growth have performed uh, over recent history. So let me start with uh, a chart with a style box chart, just showing you how the nine quadrants in the Morningstar style box have performed since 2008. And this is starting 
before the onset of the global financial crisis. And you can see that uh, there was a significant spread between value versus growth uh, in large cap, mid cap, and small caps. Uh, the spread was most pronounced uh, between large value and large growth, which was 7% over this time frame. And these are annualized numbers. So in a historical context, that's a pretty significant underperformance. Now, the next slide, we're looking at the exact same performance analysis, but now looking at just year-to-date performance through the end of July. And we can see an even wider divergence between value and growth. We actually see uh, a 34.4 uh, uh, percentage point difference between large value and large growth, a roughly 40% spread between mid-value and mid-growth and a roughly 35% spread between small value and small growth. So across the board, we again see that significant pattern. On the next slide, we're uh, using a, a cumulative sort of a growth of the dollar uh, type approach uh, to visualize just how, how that uh, happened over this time frame and how significant that acceleration was over the most recent period. So the these two lines, the top line, the blue line, is showing the, the performance of growth stocks relative to the market, so the cumulative performance uh, going back to 2007. Um, and uh, the bottom line is showing the same thing of value stocks relative to the market. And you can see that uh, there's been that relatively you know, consistent underperformance going into uh, you know, sort of the mid-teens and then has you know, accelerated in 2017, 18, 19, and uh, really has, has reached uh, sort of an inflection point more recently. Um, and then on the next slide as well, uh, now I did talk about that uh, Fama French value factor that a lot of people use within the industry. And this has data uh, in this particular case going back to the early 70s. Uh, and what we're looking at here is uh, the growth of a dollar of investing in that value factor. So value factor means that we're actually going long value stocks and short growth stocks. Um, so from the period from 1963 through uh, 2006, uh, $1 invested in that value factor in the early 1960s would have given you uh, sort of $9.5 at the end of this period. Uh, and then subsequently, since the global financial crisis, when we've seen that on the performance, uh, that, uh, you know, $9.5 would only be $4.3. You would have seen a 55% uh, decrease in the value of that investment in terms of going long value and short growth. Thanks, Philip. And I want to take a moment to underscore the magnitude of this dislocation between growth and value that started in 2007. Growth's cumulative outperformance versus the broad market and value's relative underperformance both reached about 70% at the market's nadir in March. But since then, each of those nearly doubled. Can you talk a bit about the factors that contributed to that dislocation, either leading up to or during 2020? Sure. So, so yeah, it's it's important before we you know, start thinking about what might happen in the future, it's, it's important to understand uh, those drivers. And as we, you know, get into the next section here, um, I think, you know, it's, it's important to understand that uh, there's not one single factor. I think it's a collection of things that happened, and um, in the in the in this section, we'll try to, uh, you know, come up with, uh, a, you know, a list of three uh, potential reasons why we have seen 
that, that significant divergence, which will then uh, put us in a better position to think about whether uh, that might continue in the future. So on, on the first uh, analysis, what we're trying to do here is just to decompose uh, the sources of returns by uh, the sectors uh, that uh, make up the U.S. Uh, value market relative to uh, the U.S. market overall. Um, so what this is attempting to do is uh, this is an attribution analysis, and you can see that uh, the total active uh, return over this time frame from uh, early 2008 and uh, the end of last year, 2019, we've seen a, an underperformance of negative uh, 53% of value relative to uh, the overall U.S. market. And then uh, what the analysis allows us to do is to, to attribute uh, that underperformance to um, some specific sectors. And there's really uh, three uh, key sectors I'd like to point out. So the, what this analysis is showing is that technology stocks are the number one reason uh, why value underperformed the overall market. Uh, and that's uh, because, on the one hand, uh, technology stocks are uh, less pre prevalent in the um, value segment. So that's, uh, that's why we're getting a negative um, number there in the weighting, uh, and also the, the 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 types of technology companies that are included in the in the growth sector relative to uh, the value technology sectors have done significantly better. The second reason um, is related to financial stocks. So the the fact that financial stocks uh, are more prominent within the value index has also uh, impacted the performance of of value stocks. The uh, the the selection. Of, of value uh, has been less important in this particular case, but also played uh, a role. And then the third reason is, uh, uh, from a sector perspective, are um, consumer cyclical stocks. And that, that as well uh, contributed to the underperformance, the fact that uh, there's less of a, an allocation to consumer cyclical, and particularly in this case, uh, the fact that uh, there's uh, that the types of consumer cyclical stocks included in the growth area of the market have done better than the value area of the market. So that gives you gives us a bit of an understanding of at least where uh, the underperformance has, has come from. Uh, so this analysis ends at the end of last year. I do want to now contrast this again with uh, what happened this year on the next slide. So again, showing you uh, the same analysis. And um, you know what's surprising uh, is that, uh, again, the same three um, sectors are again driving the underperformance. Again, we have technology stocks. Uh, the fact that there's fewer technology stocks in value, as well as the, the fact that the, the, the technology stocks that are included in value have done more poorly than, than the growth uh, stocks. There's uh, fewer financials in the growth area has also uh, helped the growth area. And again, uh, on the consumer cyclical side, uh, we have again seen uh, a contribution from that area. The fact that there's fewer consumer cyclical stocks in um, in the value area and also the types of consumer cyclical stocks that are included in the value area have also underperformed. So that gives us uh, you know, at least an understanding uh, of where uh, the uh, that underperformance is coming from. So let's let's talk about some potential uh, drivers of the of the underperformance. So uh, the first sort of theme I'd like to get into is this notion of uh, the rise of uh, what I call superstar firms. Uh, sometimes they're labeled, uh, people have different acronyms uh, to define them. In this uh, particular case, we're using the acronym of uh, Phantom 
these are referring to six uh, companies, uh, Facebook, uh, Amazon, uh, Alphabet or Google, uh, Apple, Netflix, and Microsoft. Um, and what, what this chart on the left-hand side, first of all, is showing, it's showing the relative performance between the S&P 500 and the MSCI All Countries XUS. So that's uh, the global stock market, excluding the United States, uh, and just showing you the, the performance difference uh, starting in 2007. You can see this significant gap uh, between the two uh, regions, uh, the U.S. Uh, performing very strongly uh, coming out of the financial crisis, whereas uh, the international market was basically flat over this time frame. Um, and then on the right-hand side, uh, we're looking at the period from 20, uh, 2015 uh, to uh, the uh, I think this was uh, updated in May, um, we're excluding um, the, uh, we're showing just the these Phantom uh, stocks uh, uh, and also showing the S&P 500 excluding uh, those, uh, those six companies. And we can see uh, once we strip those six companies out, uh, basically the performance uh, of these six companies uh, were very dominant. Uh, in driving the performance uh, since the global financial crisis, and particularly over the past five years, as well as uh, year to date. So I want to provide some some additional thoughts on, on why that happened. So the next slide is um, an additional way of uh, just highlighting uh, the, the increasing dominance and concentration that we've seen in the U.S. stock market as a result uh, of these six companies uh, at the beginning of uh, 2009, this is the end of the global financial crisis, these companies made up 5% of the U.S. stock market as measured by the S&P 500. Um, and then uh, more recently, at the end of last month, they made up 22.6% uh, of the market, which is a significant increase. And even, uh, you know, we've seen a significant increase so far this year where we started the year, they started the year, the weighting of 15% and have uh, risen uh, so far this, this year by um, 7.5 uh, percentage points. So um, what happened here? So I would say uh, initially we recognized that, that these are, you know, very high quality businesses uh, that have been able to establish a, a, a dominant position uh, in their market. Many of these companies, according to Morningstar, have wide moats, so they have uh, the ability to protect uh, uh, their businesses against uh, competition. And uh, many of these companies have been able to establish themselves uh, over this time frame. And uh, that was initially not appreciated by the market, and there were a lot of positive surprises uh, that we've seen as a result of the strong fundamental performance that these companies have had. Um, also, uh, just in terms of what happened during the pandemic, uh, the types of businesses that these companies are running have generally benefited from, uh, you know, people staying home, the lockdown, uh, the Facebook and Googles of the world, while they might have been impacted by uh, lower advertising spending, generally have seen higher engagement with their, with their online content. Amazon uh, was able to sell uh, of course, more products. Their revenues are up uh, 40%. Netflix has benefited from uh, the increased uh, usage of, of their streaming services because a lot of people are staying home. Uh, Apple, uh, there's been you know sort of an increased demand or a continued demand for uh, hardware uh, focused also on um, yeah, working from home. And Microsoft, uh, given its business model and their move 
uh, of companies to move to to more digital, uh, you know, moving things into the cloud, getting more efficient, um, has also benefited from that. So, um, you know, again, it's it's uh, you know, I would characterize uh, you know these are very high quality businesses, uh, and the market has initially not in, 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 sort of anticipated that in, in 2009. Uh, and then the pandemic uh, again, just given the, given how it, it manifested itself, benefited uh, the business models uh, of these companies. The second theme uh, I would point to in terms of the, the value growth uh, divergence is the impact that interest rates have on value versus growth companies. So what I'm plotting here is the relative performance between value and growth, which we've looked at a couple of times already uh, from 2007 through uh, the end of July, and, and contrasting that uh, with what happened to interest rates. Um, so we see that same uh, general uh, direction. And one thing to uh, understand from um, the way uh, you know, sort of valuation theory works, generally when your cash flow is further out into the future, uh, that basically means that uh, if there's a change in your discount rate, if interest rates uh, decline, uh, then if your uh, the duration your your cash flows are further out, that actually benefits you more. And generally, we have seen that uh, that trend. These companies, the six companies I mentioned before, as well as growth companies in general, uh, they tend to benefit. Uh, from uh, lower interest rates or lower discount rates. So that's another factor uh, we, we would point to here. But um, as we see on the, on the next slide, the relation between interest rates and valuation is not uh, totally symmetrical. There, if you look at long-term historical data, uh, so looking at uh, you know, the level of real interest rates historically, and the valuation multiples that the market was willing to pay uh, for companies, we can see that uh, generally there was a sweet spot between roughly a sort of a one percent real yield and a, a three to uh, three to four percent real yield. That's those were the episodes when the market was uh, was paying the highest multiple uh, for companies. Um, once we get to negative real yields, which is where we are today, uh, things get a bit more complicated. Uh, those are can be periods of of higher inflation, so periods of of, uh, of an inflation surprise. Uh, but low interest rates could also be due to um, disinflation uh, or a deflationary environment, which generally isn't great uh, for corporations. So I just want to leave that as a, a potential caveat uh, to remember here. And next, um, so we talked about you know, two factors already that might be driving the, uh, the, the difference. I want to speak to uh, kind of a more technical um, you know, way of, of thinking about the drivers of uh, the value return. And again, here, here we're thinking about the, the value factor. Um, one way of decomposing the return of uh, that factor would be to look at, uh, on the one, and the initial factor would be, uh, the revaluation factor. So revaluation means has that factor become uh, more expensive or, or cheaper? Um, the uh, the second component is uh, profitability. How profitable are value stocks relative to growth stocks? And then finally, there's a factor called migration, uh, which is really a, uh, a rebalancing return that tends to help the value factor, uh, meaning that uh, companies that have run up 
in price uh, that have a higher uh, multiple as a result are leaving the value index. And then companies that have uh, recently uh, sold off and are cheaper uh, in terms of their, their valuations are added to the index. And we can quantify that. Um, so the, what the, the, uh, the numbers below show, and they're contrasting uh, the period from 1963 through 2007 uh, with the more recent history of 2007 through, uh, through 2020, and trying to understand uh, you know, which one of these factors has really uh, you know, changed more significantly. Um, and just to start with, with the revaluation factor, over the initial period since 1963 to 2007, um, the revaluation factor is basically a wash. It's, a, it's 0.2. So over that long time frame, uh, generally, the, the valuation of the factor itself was stable. Uh, more recently, however, uh, we have seen a significant, uh, significantly negative uh, impact from that. So that sort of means that the value factor actually became uh, significantly cheaper over this time frame. Looking at the, uh, the other components, uh, first starting with uh, so the, the profitability and migration factor basically are, are added together to uh, form this structural component there. So the profitability one um, has slightly worsened, um, so it's actually gotten more negative. So profitability tends to be a negative for the value companies because growth companies tend to be more profitable. Uh, we have seen a little bit of a move in the wrong direction there, so we've seen a, a decrease of uh, Two and a half percent, and then uh, the migration factor also became marginally um, less uh, advantageous for the value factor. But broadly speaking, if we really think about what has driven uh, the underperformance uh, more recently of the value factor, it has to do so roughly less than two thirds of the underperformance is explained by the fact that the the value factor has gotten uh, cheaper, and we can expect. Uh, as we think, uh, as we sort of move forward to, to that, uh, for that to, to revert um, back, and we'll speak to that in a little bit. So I just want to, you know, again, take a step back and, and, and uh, summarize some of the key points around the drivers. Um, I'd say, um, you know, thinking back to, you know, what happened over the past uh, decade, uh, even longer going, going back to the global financial crisis, you have uh, the um, advent of uh, a number of companies in the United States that ended up being very dominant. That was initially not appreciated by the market, and the market has sort of caught up uh, to that information. And as, as a result of that, the market price uh, went up. Uh, we have seen some macroeconomic trends related to interest rates that has benefited growth companies more than value companies, just given the nature of how um, value companies work in a valuation model. Their company, their cash flows are more near-term growth company cash flows are more long-term. So a decrease in interest rates tends to help, tends to help uh, growth companies more. And if we do that more technical decomposition and try to understand how much is due to revaluation relative to those structural factors, we can see that um, you know, the, those, the revaluation component, uh, which tends to mean revert, has, done, has really driven a lot of that. Um, so on balance, uh, you know, from, from our standpoint, we think that, you know, of course that, uh, you know, these are facts, uh, but we would, we would say that, uh, it's likely that, uh, you know, these factors, these drivers will, uh, will look different over the next five to 10 years. Uh, the interest rates are already low. We're not going to be able to go from 4%, uh, 
to 0.6, uh, again, 60 basis point on, on the 10-year as it is today. Uh, the market now appreciates the fact the fact that these uh, these six companies are very dominant. Um, and, and we know from history that generally evaluations tend to mean revert back. Great, Philip. I, I think that covers the past very well. Now let's look to the future. What does your research uh, show about the probability of the growth outperformance streak continuing? And where are you seeing opportunities today? Absolutely. Yeah, so let's, um, just to, to frame the discussion again, I just want to start with uh, a long-term perspective, and we'll, we'll, we'll then speak more specifically about what, what we're seeing at the, at the individual asset level. Um, so if we, uh, we talked about the, the cheapening of the value factor, and there's a way to, to measure that quantitatively. Um, so on the next slide, uh, we're on the top blue line is showing us again the performance, the relative performance of that value factor. Uh, relative to the value factor and and how it's done, uh, particularly since the global financial crisis, the red line is showing us um, the uh, the relative valuation of the valuation of that uh, of that value factor over time using uh, price to book as the key metric. And uh, you know the one thing to uh, to highlight here is that going back to 1963, uh, you know the value factor based off of this valuation metric has never been cheaper. Uh, many people refer to the, the dot-com bubble as a period where uh, we've seen the most significant dislocation between value and growth. Uh, but uh, ever, ever since, you know, really this year, uh, with this uh, coronavirus downturn, we've, see, we've now seen, uh, you know, the, the period we're living to, through today uh, is now the most extreme in terms of the relative valuation. Of course, you know, what happened after the dot-com bubble, we've seen a pretty sharp uh, reversal of, of valuation subsequent to that, uh, to that bubble um, bursting. But uh, uh, I just want to sort of use that as the first uh, slide to level set uh, things. If we you take a closer look at, at what happened to – so this is looking at the factor itself. Um, if we look at the next slide, we uh, are actually taking a look at, um, you know, the, the whole universe of stocks, and we're uh, looking at – the, the top line there is the uh, the the five percent uh, growthiest uh, companies, and the bottom line there is the uh, uh, would be the five percent um, uh, cheapest companies. So the purple line there. Um, so what we're seeing is that you know actually value that uh, that growthiest part of the market has gotten uh, you know significantly more expensive if we look at it through the lens of uh, price to cash flow. As a metric, and conversely, we actually have seen um, the the five uh, you know percent uh, of companies that are in that uh, the cheapest value bucket get more uh, uh, actually get cheaper over this time frame. But it was mainly driven by the growth companies becoming more expensive. Uh, so that provides uh, some additional context there. Now, how how uh, it, how does the pricing of, uh, of 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 these growth companies look like. What does it the, the pricing of these growth companies look like? So um, on the next slide, um, what we're uh, trying to do here is to uh, look at what growth expectation is baked into uh, some of these high growth stocks. And in this particular case, we're using uh, not the six companies; we're using the the five companies in the in the. Uh, um, the fangs, uh, so we're excluding Netflix because uh, they, they 
don't have uh, a lot of cash flows today. But what we're solving for uh, in this case is just looking at uh, uh, you know historical uh, cash flows for these companies over the past uh, couple of years and uh, try to understand at what rate uh, these cash flow uh, in order to uh, to the, for these companies to be fairly valued, at what rate do these companies have to grow? Um, so you can see generally, in, on, a, on a cap-weighted average, the market expects that cash flows for these companies will grow at 18% uh, percent per annum over the next 10 years. Uh, if you look at the historical uh, median company, uh, the, the historical average growth rate uh, for the average company was 5.2%. Um, so, from our perspective, you know, we, we do have a fundamental analyst, uh, TBAP Morningstar. Uh, you know, some of these companies, uh, many of these companies, uh, now uh, you know, scream, uh, you know, screen less attractive on a, on a valuation basis. And if anything, they are uh, you know quite fully valued uh, given the growth expectations that are baked uh, into these stocks. And on the next slide, then, uh, as we are. Speaking about what we are, um, you know, expecting, uh, you know, for these companies moving forward, I want to give you a, a sense of how our return expectations uh, for these companies for value versus growth uh, has changed uh, in recent years. Uh, so going back to 2016, uh, value just came off of a, a pretty good performance in 2016. That's the last time, uh, last calendar year that uh, value had outperformed growth. Um, we act, our expectation uh, for growth stocks actually was higher than value stocks back then, and some of our portfolios had a bit of a tilt uh, in favor of growth stocks at the time. Um, and subsequently, given the divergence we've seen in, in price performance, we've seen uh, a wedge opening up, and today uh, we now expect uh, there to be a, about a 6% uh, difference in uh, return over the next uh, 10 years. And this is looking at uh, global stocks uh, as measured by the, uh, the MSCI ACQUI, uh large cap value and large cap growth. Um, so we think that, you know, uh, you know, adjusting, you know, to going through the fundamental analysis and understanding, uh, you know, the different growth rates and our projections um, for the, uh, for those securities that there's going to be uh, an outperformance of uh, about 6% over the next 10 years of value stocks relative to Growth stocks. If you look at the individual regions on the on the next page, we can see that um, the spread between value and growth is actually even more pronounced uh, on the bar chart on the on the next page um, between value and growth uh, in the developed world as well as the U.S. Uh, market itself. So, starting with the U.S. market, uh, our expectation for value is about two point two percent. That's adjusted for inflation. The growth expectation is negative 5.2%. Uh, so we have a 7.4% difference in, in our return expectation. Um, international developed, we see a similar picture, similar uh, divergence between value and growth with, the, with the, the main difference that our absolute expected return for international values is higher at 6.5%. On well, the next slide, uh, we're just taking a closer look at the U.S. market now, uh, also adding uh, our expectations for um, small and mid-cap value and growth. And you can see that the, the story is very similar, uh, where we expect all the value um, 
parts of the style box, if you will, to outperform the uh, the growth part of the market. And generally, that the smaller cap area of the market will do better than the large cap area of the market. So a lot of the the comments that I've made uh, today kind of used you know this industry uh, nomenclature of value versus growth and kind of the you know how that's defined in terms of when we do fundamental research. Uh, what we tend to do is we tend to look at it uh, you know at, at an individual sector or country basis uh, and really understand the fundamentals and do deep dive research and understanding. Uh, the, the drivers and the risks of a particular asset class opportunity. So, if you look at our, our asset class convictions, um, we actually don't. We're not showing a, a conviction for value versus growth. What we're showing is uh, convictions for uh, regions uh, as well as for individual sectors. So, if we take a look at our current asset class conviction chart, um, the way that that value um, exposure manifests itself is through a preference, for example, to uh, own financials and energy companies relative to uh, some of the other segments of the market. So if you look at the, um, uh, the bottom uh, part of this, uh, uh, of this chart and showing you kind of where our conviction levels are, uh, U.S. financials, European financials, as well as Japanese financials, we have a medium to high conviction. We also have a medium to high conviction for uh, energy uh, both globally as well as uh, in Europe, and also energy infrastructure, which 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 also part is also part of many of our uh, portfolios. The final uh, slide I want to show you today is uh, just provide providing you with some uh, additional analysis um, of what tends to happen to the value factor post uh, global recessions. We have uh, we're no doubt experienced a experiencing a global uh, recession uh, today as a result of the um, coronavirus pandemic. And what we've done uh, in this analysis, we, we went back to, the, to 1960 and contrasted the average return of the value factor with uh, what tends to happen one year after the end of a global recession. There were, were five or six global recessions in this sample and generally, what we tend to see is that uh, that the value factor tends to outperform. So, value tends to outperform growth after global recessions. We have uh, not seen that yet. If we look at uh, you know kind of uh, the, the performance from the bottom bottom of the market in March, uh, but more recently, as uh, some additional macro data has come in and people and investors have become more constructive, uh, you know about the potential recovery. Uh, we have seen uh, value starting to outperform, and this is this particular analysis looking is looking at one in three years after uh, the end of of the global recession. So uh, that analysis as well uh, is supportive of uh, our view that we'll uh, we'll ultimately see a, a, a reversal of uh, the performance of value relative to the growth. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks, Philip. As usual, great stuff from you, and thank you for listening. Stay safe, everyone, and come back next week for a new episode of Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. 
Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.